If you take your Bible this morning and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1 and chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Chapter 1 and chapter 4, we're continuing our Rewind series. Uh, We've talked about heaven, we've talked about judgment. Um, Today we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about worship. And so many times I think that a lot of, a lot of people, including myself, we, we come into, hey, where's my thing that was on here? Yeah, I gotta, I gotta have, I gotta have that. There you go. Thank you. Now, back to what I was saying. I think we oftentimes come into place of worship and we don't fully understand what worship is. We come with little understanding and, um, I, as your pastor, have been trying to figure out the dynamics of, of true worship for a long time. How it should look how it should sound, how it should feel, and how it should flow. And uh, we spend time every week preparing for this. We prepare the media, we prepare the music, and we prepare the message to come together and, and do what we know as worship. The messages are essential, the music is significant. We make them a big deal because somehow they, they speak to us and they feed us somehow. But there are a couple of things I want us to know about worship as we just get started this morning. And in your in your bulletin, there is a note sheet. If you take that out, you can use that to take notes on this morning. I provide most of the notes. There are a few blanks for you to fill in. But there are two lessons I want us to start with this morning about worship. And the, the first one is that the great desire of all humanity is to worship. It's our great desire. We were created to worship. We are hardwired for it. God made us to worship. Worship is something that we don't just do, but worship is it's who we are. We are worshipers. But there's not just a great desire, there's a there's a great danger in worship and that great danger is in the modern church is that our desire is to often worship worship. And what I mean by that is we, we get, we get stirred and we get emotional and we feel the energy, but when we feel the energy, we're not necessarily feeling the Spirit and experiencing what the Holy Spirit has for us and what we want, what the Holy Spirit wants to say to us. And, you know, I hear people all the time, the music was great, the message, it was amazing and, and we feed off of that, but I don't want the amazement to be about the worship itself. The amazement needs to be about the person and presence of God, His Spirit among us. And so today as we talk about worship, I'm just overwhelmed by how we can come into the nice building and have this incredible experience and have music that moved us and a message that that amazed us and we can kneel and we can bow and we can pray and we can praise and we can raise our hands and still we could have never worshipped. I love the music. I love music. But music can sometimes lead us astray. I want you to look at this with me. There's a little cartoon that I found that I wanted to share. Did something happen to our screen? Well, it says this. There's a guy that says, hey, I, I love the music and your church. Who's this Jesus guy that you sing about? And this girl says, well, I have no idea, but we've been singing about him for years. And, and so that's the, that's the danger when it comes to, to worship. 
One pastor said that if he changed his theology, he would lose about 10% of his people. But if he changed his music, he would lose about 50% of his people. And so, you know, say it ain't so. That's, that's not what we want to see happen in worship because worship is not about the worship service. Worship is about the presence of God. And so what if we were doing all of this stuff that looked really nice, it sounded really good, and man, it made us feel real good about ourselves, and it made us look righteous and holy, and we feel amazing, and then we come to the realization that we had it all wrong. And my question is, is would you really want to know? If we had it all wrong, if maybe we were just missing it a little bit, would you really want to know? Because I would. I would want to know. And so, therefore, I ask myself the question, what is real authentic worship and why do we do it? Why do we worship God and are we doing it the right way? And so, the question is, there are actually three questions I'm going to ask today. And the first one is, what is worship? The word worship comes from an English word, an old English word, worship is how you would say it. And it means to ascribe worth and honor to another. But in a biblical sense, the word worship means to ascribe worth and honor to God. To ascribe worth and honor to God. I like the Webster Dictionary definition of worship from 1828. It says, worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. I think that encapsulates what it means to really worship. It is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. In Scripture, we see a lot of different forms of worship. There are a lot of different words that, that, that illustrate what worship is. In the Hebrew language, there's a word called shakah. It, it means to, to bow down to. And then in Aramaic, there is a word for worship. It's the word sagid. It means to prostrate oneself. You know what it means to prostrate yourself? It means to lay down. I'm not going to do it. It means to lay down. Does anyone be able to hear me talk? It means to lay down flat on your face before God to pay homage to someone. That's what that word means. And then there's a Greek word. The Greek word is proskuneo. And what it means is to kiss the hands toward another. Here, let me illustrate, okay? Um, Lynn, would you come? Um, I don't ask somebody if they want to volunteer. I just say, hey, will you, will you come? I just ask, hey, will you come? And so this is kind of what, this is the picture you get in the New Testament is a person coming and it means to, to bow down to. It means to put your forehead on the ground. And so worship is this. This is the picture you get of worship. Proskuneo, it also means to Does that make you feel uncomfortable? It it should. That's what it means to bow down to someone. This word, it encapsulates that idea of worship to, to bow down and to kiss the hand of another is an act of honor and respect. And then there's another word in the Greek language, latria. And that means, that's where we get our word liturgy. Liturgy is like the order of a worship service. Uh, we prepare a, a liturgy, if you will. We know when we're going to sing this song and who's going to do this and at what time this is going to happen. And that's just the order of service. And so there's a liturgy. But this word latria doesn't actually mean the order of a worship service. It actually means to serve as a response of worship for what God has done. 
And then there are other things that flow out of that heart of worship. There's singing and dancing and meditation and prayer and praise and the lifting of the hands and the, the bowing down. Those are, those are things that, that, that are an outward sign of inward worship. But worship begins in the heart. It begins on the inside. It's a, it's a heart response to God is what worship really is. In the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was teaching His disciples how to pray. And Jesus said, hey, pray like this. And then in verse 10, He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And my understanding of that verse, and I'm not the brightest bulb in the box, but what I believe that means is that we should pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I believe that includes our worship. So for worship on earth to look like worship in heaven, then we must see it. We must get a glimpse of what that worship was really like. And we get a snapshot of that in Revelation chapter 1. And we see it again in Revelation 4. And it was the Apostle John who wrote this book. The Apostle John, he was a disciple of Jesus. He was the closest one. He was the beloved disciple I don't know if Jesus called him the beloved disciple or if he just felt that he was the one closest to Jesus. I'm not really sure. But uh, he had this special relationship, this bond with Jesus on earth as he followed him. And it was John who wrote five books in the New Testament. He wrote the the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he also wrote the book of the Revelation. And he was a castaway on the Isle of Patmos. The Isle of Patmos is out in the Mediterranean Sea and it's just, it's just there. And they took him and they, they cast him out on this, on this island because of the message that he preached, of the, the gospel that he would not stray from, this message of the truth of Jesus Christ. And he was left there to die. And it was there that he had this experience. John gets a glimpse of heaven. He sees it and he does his best to describe it. And I can imagine that this is one of those you just had to be there moments. I mean, just reading it, you can, you can't hardly get your mind wrapped around the beauty and the glory of what it was to see heaven and what it was to see this worship experience. But he, but he writes it down. Revelation one. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then you go to verse 12 and he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then in verse 17, John heard and, and he saw Jesus. And his response was this. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So John had this natural, immediate response. It was a reaction to what he saw in the complete truth of who Jesus Christ really was. And then in chapter 4, he says, I looked and behold a door, in verse 1, 
standing open in heaven. And the ver- and the, the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit and behold. Now I had to see, well, what does that word behold mean? What he was saying is, lo and behold. Okay, have you ever heard someone say that? Lo and behold. And what he means by that is there was a transition in the scenery. There was a transition in the experience. And one minute he's walking up to this place and the door is open and he looks in and he sees this glory and majesty, something like he's never seen before. And he was surprised. He was taken back and he was just in awe of what he saw. And what he saw was a throne and one who sat on it. He saw 24 thrones that were around it. And he saw lightning and thunder and torches of fire and a sea of glass like crystal. And all these creatures he describes in chapter 4. And then in verse 8 he says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease. And day and night they never cease. And day and night they never cease. To say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him, who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before Him, who is seated on the throne and worship Him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, can you imagine that? Maybe a little bit. I mean, if you go back and read it a few times for yourself, you can probably begin to imagine what that looked like and what that experience was like and how exhilarating that must have been for John. What an honor. For John to have that experience. And what an honor for this Word of God to be treasured and kept for so many years throughout history. For us to see just a little glimpse of what worship is going to be like in heaven. And I'm convinced that our worship on earth should resemble the worship in heaven. And so there's a question that... um, that we're going to be asked this morning is, first of all, what is worship? And there's a second question is, why do we, why do we worship? Why were those people bowing? Why were those creatures singing? Or why were they chanting? Why were they saying he was worthy? What, what is it? What is it that causes us to worship? Well, here's, here's an answer to that. Worship is my natural response to God because of who he is. Worship is my natural response to God Simply because of who He is. Worship is that natural response that's that's based on the revealed truth of God. And so when you get the truth of God, it causes you to to worship. It, it, it causes all to um, take root in your heart and it's got to come out. And so how it comes out is bowing and singing and, and saying. It's proclaiming and declaring the worth and the worthiness of God. John Piper said that worship is having strong affections for God rooted in and shaped by the truth of Scripture. That's what worship is. When you get the real truth about who He is, it's natural that you want to know Him. It's not just a response. It's a, 
an immediate reaction. There's a difference between, hey, there is this guy named Jesus and wow, this is Jesus, the son of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we bow down to him. There's a difference in knowing who Jesus is and then being in awe of the truth that's been revealed to who he really is. And that's why the elders bow down to worship and they worship continually. Here, let me let me illustrate this. Do you know who this is? Do you know who this is? You say, well, yeah, this is a punk kid with uh, a mullet. Well, not exactly. But when you see this guy walk into church, he'll probably say, yes, hey, how you doing? You know, he'll go his way. He'll go sit in his chair. But then when you realize who it is. Hey, it's Willie. Willie. And then there's a line that's formed outside the door and down the street. Everybody wants his autograph, right? Because this guy, he's. This is this is Willie Robertson. I mean, he's the Doug Dynasty dude. He's a millionaire and he's famous and everybody wants a piece of Willie because of who he is, because it's it's that he has been revealed. The truth has been revealed to us of who he is. Then there's this other guy. You know who this is? Hey, it's not Willie. In fact, it's not a Robertson. This is. The quarterback of the Houston Texans, and you probably still don't know who he is. His name is Ryan Fitzpatrick, right? But how about this one? You know who this guy is? You know who this is? This is not me in the fifth grade. Okay? But this is not just some little kid. Can we, can we see who this is? This is JJ Watt, okay? Now, now everybody says, yeah, we want, we want a little bit of JJ Watt in the house. And so JJ comes in and we pack the house. Everybody's excited because JJ's here. See, it changes our response when we get the truth of who somebody really is. And then you got this guy here. This guy is Jesus and who John walked up on this earth with. And, and so let's just picture that this guy with the thing on his head is John. And he's having a conversation with Jesus. It might have even been an argument because these guys were, were prideful. They had a lot of conversation. They spent a lot of time with Jesus. And this could have been an argument. It could have been a deep, heated discussion, whatever it is. But he walked with Jesus and he knew him personally on some level. But when John saw this, and this doesn't even describe it, I started not to even put a picture on the wall or on the screen so you could see this. But when John saw this, he fell as he was like dead. He fell down to worship. Because when the truth of God is, is really revealed, there's this automatic reaction to bow and worship. He says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And that's because the complete, authentic truth about Jesus Christ will be revealed to all men. And we won't be able to help but worship. And so we worship Him because of who He is. And then there's a second thing that I want to show you. Is that we worship... And our worship is a natural response, not just because of who He is, but because of what He's done. We worship because of what He's done. You say, well, what has He done? Well, He created the universe, and He formed the heavens and the earth, and He created every living thing. But the very best of His work was when He created humanity. Do you know that? The very best of His work was when He created you. And the awesome thing is, is that we're all different. There's diversity. There's diversity in language. There's diversity in color. There's diversity in personality. 
There's a lot of diversity among God's creation just among humanity. That's not including all other living things. But the highest, most supreme creation of God's handiwork was humanity. It was you. and It was me. And there's a lot of value placed on humanity. In fact, it was... It was the, the creation of humanity was so uh, supreme that it's you and I, it's humanity, it's people that God chooses to have a relationship with in a special way, like He has a relationship with no one else. And so we worship based on what He's done. And you say, well, what is it that He's done for me personally that should move me to worship? And here's what happened in heaven. Here's why it happened in heaven. Here's why people worshiped. In heaven. Revelation 5 verse 9. It says they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And here's the answer. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And so God created us to have this perfect relationship with Him. And not too far after creation, not too long after He created man and had a desire to have a relationship with man, man cheated on God. We cheated on Him. We, we turned from Him. The first man and woman, Adam and Eve, they disregarded God's Word and they disobeyed His warning and command. And out of rebellion and out of deception... They, they turned from Him. They forfeited that relationship with God. And God called that act of disobedience, He called it sin. He called it what it was. It was, uh, it was, it was leaving that which was true. It was missing the mark. It was drifting from that true and holy relationship that they, that they God had desired for them to have. And because they are our parents, they're the parents of the human race, then we have sin. We have this sin problem. We have a bent Toward it. We have a propensity to sin. It's called original sin. In other words, it just comes naturally. It's part of who we are. We're born with it. We're born with this sin problem. We have a sinful DNA and it's, it's natural for us to be distant and disconnected from God. And if we choose, we can stay disconnected from God. We can choose that. But if we choose that, then what we are saying is that we would rather die and go to hell than to have a relationship with Jesus and worship. That's what we're choosing. But because God is infinite in His grace and His mercy and love and His kindness, He already had made a way to restore the relationship between Him and us. His plan was to send His own Son to die for us, to die in our place. That's why we worship. Jesus came and He shed His blood. He gave His life. He, he gave His body as a sacrifice and His blood to cover our sin. And that's why we worship. I don't care what anybody's ever given you. No one's ever loved you like that. Nobody. And nobody ever will and nobody ever can. That is the supreme, infinite, unconditional love that we'll never experience on this earth outside of Jesus Christ. And so that's what He's done for us. And so there's a third question that remains, and that is, how do we worship? How do we worship? 
See, worship is about surrendering everything that we have and everything that we are to God. It's it's following His command to love God and to love people. It's trusting and obeying the leading of the Holy Spirit. Hey, it's even going to church. Did you know that this is worship? This is worship when it's done in the right heart and with the right spirit. But this isn't the end of of worship. This isn't all there is. In fact, this is just kind of where it begins for a lot of people. People come to church because they have a need. They have problems. They want to connect with people. I see it all the time. People go through a rough spot in life. They hit bumps in the road and immediately they want to get in church. They want to come back to God. They believe that God's judging them for not living right or for making a mistake. And they come running back to the church thinking that coming to church is going to solve their problems. Coming to church will never solve your problems if it's just about coming to church and checking a box and saying, hey, I went to church today and and feeling really good and holy about that. That'll never do it for you because because God created us for more than that. It's a deeper kind of worship that God created us for in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it shows us that, that worship is to be a way of life. It's not just to be an activity that we do once a week, but it's to be a way of life. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we worship by coming to church, by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, and then we worship by representing Him wherever we go, by representing Him at work, by representing Him at home, by representing Him at school. You're going to have that opportunity this week. The Bible says to come out from among them and be separate. And what that means is it doesn't mean to separate yourself and confine yourself inside a building to be the church and just just huddle up with people who are just like you. That's not what he means. What he says is be in the world. Be different. You are salt. You are light. You're a witness. You're a testimony to the life changing grace and love and mercy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's worship. We worship with our our whole life. So it's, it's a way of life. But then what I want you to get this morning is that worship is about so much more than everything I've, I've said. Worship, deep, authentic worship is about relational intimacy with God. It's about relational intimacy, not religious responsibility. Not religious responsibility. Some of the harshest words that Jesus ever spoke were directed to those who were faithful in their worship. They were those who were pursuing some form of holiness and godliness and righteousness and they thought they had it figured out. And so they would fast. You know what fasting is? This is August 24th, so I'm preparing you now. Okay? We do a 21-day fast at the first of every year. I'm going to invite you to begin to pray about that. But fasting is is you go without food for a certain amount of time. And they would fast, and they would fast in a way that would disfigure their faces, and they would lose a lot of weight, and it was very evident that they were fasting. It was not holy. And Jesus saw it, and Jesus condemned the way that they did it. And so, He called them out on it. 
because it was heartless, it was meaningless, it was empty form of worship. They would stay on the street corner and they would pray out loud so people could hear how holy they were because they prayed. Have you ever heard people pray and you thought, man, they can't really pray very well. Have you ever heard people pray and say, man, that dude, he's got it going on because I've never heard anybody pray like that. That was awesome. You ever experienced that? I have. I've experienced it to where people pray in a way that just like, man, it made me feel, made me feel bad about myself because I couldn't pray like that. So I thought I was missing some element in my relationship with God. But worship's not about religious activity. Worship's not about how well you pray and how smart you are, how many scriptures you can quote and how many you've memorized. It's not about that. It's not about how often you go to your life group and what position you hold there. Your, your worship is not about coming to church and singing songs and hearing a sermon every week. It's not about that. It's not about teaching kids in Sunday school, children's church, or or even going and feeding the homeless. That's not what it's about. It's about a heart connection with God. It's about a deep relationship with God that's free-flowing, that's spontaneous, that's real and deep, and it's, it's heartfelt. And there's a connection with God that drives you to this place where you want to live holy, and you want to live righteous, and you want to love people, because God's the one pouring into you. God's the one filling you up. And today we need God to fill us up. We need God to bring us to a true place of worship. Bob and Sue were a couple. They had been married for just a few years. And Sue felt that after these few years of marriage that Bob's sense of uh, romance had, had, had diminished. And a lot of women here today say amen, right? It's kind of a natural thing that you see if your husband was ever very romantic... You might see that over time it just it just kind of um, it kind of loses its its wonder and its its um, its power. There's this term in psychology that's called habituation, and habituation is this: it's to where you do something over and over and over, and the more you do it, the the less it does for you, the less it stimulates you, the less it affects you, and you just kind of get in this rut and become apathetic. And that's what Sue was seeing in Bob. And so she went to Bob and she confronted him on the issue. And he was very cordial and very accepting. And he acknowledged her need and he valued her as his wife. And so he planned this big date. He said, I know what I'll do. I'm, I'm going to plan it. It's going to be big. And so he called the babysitter and the babysitter shows up at the house and rings the doorbell. And Sue comes to the door and surprised to see the, the babysitter. Uh, the husband about uh, Bob comes around the corner about that time and he tells Sue, Hey, darling, go upstairs and put on your favorite dress. We're going to go out tonight and we're going to we're going to spend some time together. So she goes and puts on her dress and she gets in the car and he takes her to the greatest upscale restaurant that he could possibly afford. So they go on this date and as they were ordering, she was looking at the menu and he pulled out her favorite flower, a beautiful blue rose. And he was excited about this night that he was going to spend with his wife and they ate together and they, they talked like they had never talked and they, they seemed to be connecting in a way they'd never connected. And at the end of the night, he felt that he had scored big, that he had really won in this situation. And his wife was feeling good about it too and 
there's a smile on her face and they ended the night well. And in Bob's mind, he began to ask himself the question, does this have to end? Does this have to end? What can I do to make this continue, to make it last so that we continue this feeling and this experience? So the next Tuesday, Bob called the babysitter, had her come over. He told his wife, hey, hey, babe, go upstairs and put on that same dress. And he, she went and got dressed, she thought it was a little odd, but she went and got dressed and he put her in the car and he takes her to this same upscale restaurant. And when she was looking at the menu, he pulled out another blue rose. And the night went sort of like it went the last time and, you know, he was feeling really good about it and so... The next Tuesday came around. He said, I know what we'll do. I'm going to call the babysitter. I'm going to have her put on that same dress. I'm going to take her to the same restaurant and I'm going to get her a blue rose. It's her favorite. In fact, we're going to start calling Tuesdays Blue Rose Tuesday. And if you were to ask Bob to describe how well he was doing as a husband, he would probably admit that he was doing very well in that department. That he was a romantic. But if you ask his wife, you'd probably get a different story. You'd probably see Susan drop her head and possibly break into tears because she felt that she was in some kind of prison. In fact, she would probably feel that she could go to dinner with anybody and have any kind of conversation and get out of it. A heartless rose, a heartless poem, and heartless words of adoration. As I read that story, I started thinking about how we worship and how we get all dressed up for God, how we come to the nice place, and how we offer God some form of blue rose. And how the first time, I imagine, it really stirs the heart of God. But then we do it again the next week, and the next week, and the next. And it just becomes some kind of heartless, meaningless, empty form of worship that is based on responsibility and routine. And it's not about intimacy and connecting with a holy God. Can you connect with that? So what do we do about that? We kind of go back and we have to rewind a little. Because sometimes we can grow apathetic. We can grow just a little familiar with what God has really done for us. We can become very uh, detached from the complete truth of who God really is. And when that happens, we don't have a lot of desire to worship with that heartfelt, deep connection that God desires from us. You know, I look at the life of David and I read Scriptures about worship and I, I see how in John chapter 4, Jesus told the woman at the well that to worship, we have to worship in spirit and in truth. And that spirit is 
the, the truth is what stirs that spirit in us, and you can't really worship without the two. To know God deeply drives us to a natural reaction, a natural response to worship. Now see, David, David says in Psalm 57, he says, My heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. In Psalm 108, verse 1, he says, O God, my heart is fixed, I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. Even with all this stuff that I have, I still need you. Even with all this stuff I have, I can't live without you. With everything that I have and all the power that I have and all the armies that I have, even being the king of a kingdom, I still need you. I can't do without you. My heart is fixed on you. And it's so awesome that God says that David is the man after God's own heart. He had a heart connection with God. Was he perfect? No. Did he sin? Yeah, he sinned big. It almost ruined his life and he lost a child and it devastated him. But God never left him. God continued to pursue him. God continued to love David because David had a heart for God. And my question today is what is your relationship with God? What does it look like and how does that relationship that you have with God drive your worship? How does your worship drive your relationship? Is your worship rooted in relational intimacy? Or is your worship just part of a religious routine and you're just going through the motions? My heart and desire for myself and for my family and for our church is that God would see a heart in us to truly, truly worship. I'm going to ask Philip to come. I'm going to ask him to, to lead us in a time of response. My prayer is that we would get a real clear picture of who Jesus is, who God is. Remember last week I showed you the picture of the judge, that God God's not this harsh judge just waiting to hit you on the head and to smite you every time you make a mistake or a wrong turn. God is ready and willing to forgive. When we confess, when we confess and we come broken before God, brokenness brings us to our knees. Brokenness puts us on our face. And it leads us to see the truth of who we are. It leads us to see the truth of who God is. And God in His power, in His love, in His kindness swoops down and He picks us up and He raises us up and He breathes new life into us. Just like He did with the woman who committed adultery. He picked her up. He put His hands on her face. And He says, woman, where are those? Your accusers. And what the woman saw is there were none. And Jesus said, then go and sin no more. If we can rest in the truth of that, of that's who God is, and that's His love, and that's His kindness, it'll break our heart and we'll come before God and we'll be like the elders in heaven. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lord to receive honor and praise and music and a church service and child care and a worship band and a preacher and a sermon. They won't even matter. They'll be secondary. And God and His presence will be supreme. So today, let's renew that relationship with God. Let's get our heart in the right place. I'm going to ask our worship team, I mean, to, to uh, our, our prayer team to come and be available. If you need prayer, let's do business with God. Let's get somebody to pray for us if we need prayer, if we need help. If not, you can come here and pray. Use this as your altar and come and pray and pour your heart out to God. Let's be broken before Him and lay out before God. And if you want to do it in your chair, that's fine. But there's just something to me about coming and kneeling at an altar and just getting before God to a place where we have room then do that. It's not expected, but it's available. So you come today as God leads you. You respond as He stirs the Spirit within you. Let's stand together.